Happy birthday, New Life. Uh, it's a delight for me to be joining you this morning. Thanks to Pastor Will, as well as the session, for giving me this honor. It's a joy for me to also bring greetings not only from our institution, as Pastor Will said, there's been such an intimate relationship between this church and our institution for a long, long time. We're grateful for you and for your prayers, but also from my family as well. They're unable to join me this morning, but their prayers and well wishes are with you, and we're so grateful for this church to which our family's been very much indebted. And so we're grateful for your continued presence here in Orange County and your service here as well. I feel a little nervous this morning. Part of that is because Pastor Will has made it very strict that I have time limitation uh, this morning, and so I feel like there's pressure on top of me as I think about it, but I think we should read the Bible. And so we want to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Let's all rise in reverence before his name as we hear the word being proclaimed. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So far, the reading of his word. Please be seated. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you that you call us your sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, and then you invite us and welcome us into your home this morning. Speak to us directly, O Lord, that these things may not just become intellectual exercises for us, but the truth found in your word may be not only piercing our hearts, but these things may be applied to our lives as well. We pray for those who are inquiring, those who do not know you personally and intimately, and we ask that the Spirit will work in their hearts for them to come to a knowledge of who you are, that they may taste the goodness of the Lord that you promised to us. For we pray these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Adolescence, or teenage years, is the period of transition between childhood and adulthood as defined by one of the websites that I had a chance to look at recently. It's a period marked by change, be it intellectual, physical, emotional, and social, a period of experimentation and a search for identity that perhaps many of us can identify with, and it's something that I can as we raise two teenagers of our own. I want to be able to tell you, brothers and sisters, this morning that the church in Ephesus that we read was struggling with spiritual adolescence. They have experienced the grace of God in Christ, but do not yet fully understand what it means to live in this new reality. They realize that their identity is now firmly grounded in Christ, 
but are currently struggling to understand what that means for their lives here and now. They recognize that love transcends all ethnic boundaries, even between Jews and Gentiles, as many struggled in the first century, but at times allow their ingrown habits and animosities to dominate. They confess their belief in God alone, but are often in fear and wanting to cover all the bases by incorporating beliefs and practices that are actually contrary to the Word of God. As their spiritual father, the apostle writes to them. He writes to encourage maturity, growing in strength and resolve and stability and understanding. And we, as listeners in the 21st century, get to actually hear what he has to say. In many ways, I myself and perhaps many of you and as church, there is a bit of adolescence in all of us. And as we get to listen in, we get to hear our spiritual father, in this case, Apostle Paul, speak to us about the growth that we ought to see in ourselves under three headings, thankful, prayerful, powerful, thankful, prayerful, and powerful. Paul is a proud father as he begins by saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And I think many of us can also echo the same words when we say we give thanks for you all here at New Life and the faithfulness that you have exhibited. Here, you can ask the question, why is he so thankful? There are two particulars that he points to when he begins by saying, for this reason, which is actually a pointer back to verses 3 through 14. And here, what we are summarizing there is what God has done. Paul is thankful because of what God has done. He spoke of God's magnificent plan of rescue in the Son, Jesus Christ, now revealed and received by Paul and the fellow believers found in the church in Ephesus. I love the action verbs that are found in the previous paragraph, where you see God as the primary actor to all the things that take place when he says, he blessed us, verse 3. He chose us, verse 4. He predestined us, verse 5. He blessed us in the beloved, verse 6. He lavished upon us, verse 8. We were sealed by him. He's the central character. He's the central actor. He is the one who bestows upon us all the blessings. You recognize in Ephesians chapter 2 where it reminds us that Ephesians, like many of us, were once dead in the trespasses and sins, subjects of the prince of the power of the air, living in passions of our flesh, and therefore children of wrath apart from Christ Jesus. But because of God now in Christ Jesus, they were chosen in Christ, adopted as children of God, verse 5, being loved by God, blessed by Christ, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what it summarizes for us. He's thankful because of what God has done among us and among the people in Ephesus. But he's thankful not only for what God has done in the past, for what God is now doing. Here, Paul is delighted to hear that the Spirit is at work among them. We see this in verses 15 and 16 when he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... Paul is thankful because their new life in Christ is producing in them the newness of life. There's change among them. In particular, he refers to the familiar virtues as he talks about faith 
and love. Not only are the Christians in Ephesus believing in Christ Jesus as the proper object of their faith, but more importantly, they are living faithfully in Christ Jesus. They exhibit what it means to live faithfully where their lives and actions show their new identity in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But it's not only their faith, but their love. On display was their love for one another. And in this, Paul is probably referring, especially in terms of the ethnic divisions that they had in the church and how they are able to love one another. But more generally, Paul is thankful for the practical expression of care and concern of believers toward all of God's people. Here, as a spiritual father, Paul is very proud and thankful. Thankful for what God has done among them, the believers, and what God is currently doing among them as well. I'm not Paul, but may I add my own thanks to you all. As I mentioned earlier, for our family, we feel indebted to this church for growing us, protecting us, loving us, caring for us for many years while we served here and even as we're apart. But I don't think that's a testimony of just one individual or one family. In the last four years, especially through the global pandemic, many have been cared for. Many have been loved by the church. Many continue to grow in their faith as a result of the faithful proclamation of the word and love and care for one another. And so here, as we celebrate four year, our, our four-year anniversary, hear the Apostle Paul say, good and well done, my faithful friends, because the Lord has been good to you and he continues to bless the church as you serve him well. So he is indeed thankful, and he wants to be able to convey the thankfulness of the Lord in this way, but Paul remains prayerful. What Paul hoped for and desired most for his spiritual children was growth, maturity, that the fullness that, that he hoped and prays for, that they all will reflect the glorious image of their son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and he knows that they are, however, prone to wander, as that hymn says, and prone to leave the God that they love. It's not the lack of love, come thou fount says, but it's even in the midst of love sometimes you and I struggle in our faith. So Paul turns to the only one who can help, the only one upon whom he can place his trust. We, after all, are not only saved by grace, but we all are sustained by grace, and he turns to the Lord, the Father in heaven, for the prayers necessary as he talks about the maturity of the faith. And perhaps many of us, as we continue in our labors as well as our lives, these may become focal point of our prayers as well because we have to ask, what does he pray for? What are the topics of Paul's prayers for the church in Ephesus? And perhaps in turn in the 21st century, what are the prayers that we ought to have for ourselves as new life in Orange County here? Well, there are three things, three quick prayers for us to reflect upon in verse 18, where one, the prayer is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The first point is hope. This completes the triad of virtues that we saw earlier, faith, love, now hope. He spoke of the faith and love that the Ephesians have. Now he prays that they may more fully grasp what it means to have hope. The hope prayed for is not wishful thinking or often changing desire on our, in, our, in, in our hearts, but the confident hope of being manifested with Christ in glory. It's the hope that looks futureward, 
that looks to the last day, when Christ, who is your life, appears, Paul says elsewhere in Colossians, then you also will appear with him in glory. And what Paul prays for the church is that this hope be theirs. And for us, that this hope become yours as well. For Ephesians, who had no hope without Christ. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in this world, is what Paul said. The hope that Christ provides may have been difficult to comprehend or for them even to accept. But friends, the promise of God is that one day we will stand with Christ in the final resurrection. I know that sounds far, far off for those of us who are on the younger end of things, that one day we will be clothed in His glory. He will one day bring us home, and until that day, He promises to carry, provide, and to guide his sons and daughters and his people, confident hope not found in our abilities, but in God's faithfulness to us. So the prayer is that people of God have hope. But the second part of this prayer is that people of God understand the riches. Verse 18 says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, friends, it's possible. It's possible to make the argument that the inheritance here is what God is saying about what we will receive from Him. And certainly, Scripture elsewhere reminds us that there is much inheritance. In fact, we are co-heirs with Christ, and much will be given to His people. However, the text speaks of His inheritance. That is, inheritance that belongs to God. It is preferable for us to understand this as the portion which belongs to God, namely, His own people. Now, let me explain what this means by bringing another translation here in the New Living Translation where it says, I pray, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. In other words, God has made you and me in Christ Jesus His own. You are His, and you belong to Him. Oftentimes, people of God forget that they belong to God, the Father in heaven. And here, Paul is reminding them, you all belong to Him. We are His treasured possession. Thus, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate and experience the extraordinary value which God places on them simply because of Jesus Christ. He sees you as Jesus sees you. This is where Isaiah 43 declares, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O O, uh, Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, the Lord declares. I have called you all by name. You are mine. You are mine, declares the Lord. Heidelberg Catechism, when you rewind all the way back in the confessions that you read today, the first question asked that I'm sure you remember is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, the confession declares, but belong body and soul, life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here the Lord declares that you are mine in the Son. There's nothing that can change it. We are His treasured possession, Paul says, and you ought to remember that. Not only the hope that we have in the future, but that you are declared His. But He's not done yet. He, he said there's a third a prayer that he wants to lift up to be for these Christians. And the topic that he lifts up is simply this in verse 19 and 20 of power. That the Christians understand the power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? The focus is the amazing power of God at work among his people. The power of God is made emphatic by the beginning with a common word for power. You've heard this word before. In the original, the word is simply dunamis. But he adds three more words for power. Our translations cannot actually get this going when there are three synonyms here. What is translated as the working of his great might, more woodenly is translated the working of the strength of his might. Here, there are four concentrated words in one sentence. You know why? It's because he wants to make this an emphasis. There is no underlining. There is no highlighting. There is no block lettering here in the first century. Simply, he wants to say, you need to understand something. And the way I'm going to emphasize it is by repeating synonymous words four times in one sentence. Power, 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 he says. Paul has piled up similar words because he wants to convince his readers that God's power working on behalf of the believers is incomparable and fully able to meet all their needs. This is the prayer that he has for his saints in Ephesus. Hope in Christ Jesus because he will bring you home. Riches because you are his and you belong to him. And the power of God that is powerful enough, immeasurable, and incomprehensible to one day care for you and to bring you home. It's intriguing here that Paul, having talked about how thankful he is and how prayerful he is for his people, he decides this is insufficient. There's a tale here where he takes the third point. Hope's an important thought. Riches are important. But he says power I don't think you fully comprehend. So let me spend a little bit more time, he says, describing to you this power. Because many of us struggle with these things, don't we? Um, Sharon's not here with me today because her father had a quadruple uh, heart surgery on Tuesday. And so she's taking care of the family and staying with them as we pray for them and understand that the Lord's hands upon them. I was in Korea last weekend when the whole tragedy in the Itaewon happened on Saturday night, I found out as I woke up on Sunday morning as I was about to go preach somewhere, recognizing that there are these tragedies that are taking place that are beyond our control. Here, this is not just the 21st century. First century is the same. Though we may say we have hope, though we may say we know we're rich is, though we may say God is powerful, the reality around us may not always seem congruent with the things that we want to believe, we want to be able to say. And this is where Paul takes a little bit more time. 
He says, let me tell you about power a little bit. At the heart of the city of Ephesus stood the temple of Artemis. It was big, 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. It was beautiful. One of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, we're told. And it was incredibly symbolic. It symbolized the presence of a goddess named Artemis, whom the locals believed was someone who was a goddess of fertility, later on adopted by the greater Greco-Roman culture to be called Diana, as well as Artemis of the Parthenon there, where you come to recognize that she was the goddess of hunting, goddess of wilderness, childhood, and even chastity. This stood as a symbol right in the middle of the city. Everyone saw it. And what we come to recognize is that like the first century, many of us along with them, the default mode for human spirituality is the impulse to have our God that we can see. Seeing is believing, after all. A God that we can control. Push A, that you get push B back. A God we can contain. After all, we do not want a God that impinges on our freedom. Only those times when we need them, we say to ourselves. And a God that we can comprehend. Here, the events A and events B make sense to us because we understand it as if God owes us an explanation or to do only those things that are comprehensible to human beings. We often make God small, personal, and human-sized. Perhaps a friend that we can call when we want and a friend that we would ghost when we don't want. Here, God becomes ever smaller in our perspective and understanding. Now, you may not think that you are doing so, but oftentimes here, inadvertently, without thinking through, these issues are true for us. Ed Welch, in a book titled, When People Are Big and God is Small, helps us diagnose whether you and I have inadvertently made God small. And he uses the element of fearing man to that end when he says, when God and spirituality are reduced to our standards or our feelings, God will never be able, to, uh, God will never be to us the awesome Holy One of Israel. With God reduced in our eyes, a fear of people will thrive. He further goes on to say, we are more concerned about looking stupid, a fear of people, than we are about acting sinfully a rightful fear of God. Here, if we find ourselves fearing man more, fearing other women more, instead of fearing God for the sins that we commit, it's an indication he diagnoses to simply say, we've made God extremely small in our lives. As people who by default create gods in our own images, Paul wants to make sure that we understand how big God is. How big and powerful is God, especially for our younger brothers and sisters here? He's big. And the way we recognize that is because of the empty tomb. Here, the way Paul's logic works is that he is so powerful, verse 20 goes on to say that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Friends, the empty tomb proclaims that Christ is not dead, he lives. 
Death has no power nor mastery over God, despite the fact that it's yours and my greatest fear in life. He raised Jesus from the dead by his power. And if the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the supreme demonstration of God's love for us, then the resurrection of Christ Jesus is the supreme demonstration of God's power, overcoming sin and its consequence, death. But it's not only that the empty tomb reminds us that our God lives, here the empty tomb declares that Christ is not dead, he reigns. He reigns. He not only lives, but he reigns. Notice Paul's focus here in verse 20 and following. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, he says. Theologians use fanciful words like exaltation as well as enthronement. In fact, it's even our confessions, isn't it? That Christ is seated at our right hand. These fanciful words are all meaning and pointing to the same thing, that our living Christ reigns over you. Our living Christ is the ruler over all. Our Christ who created all things continues to sustain life until the day of eternity. As one scholar explains, the resurrection proclaims he lives, and that forever. The exaltation, as well as the enthronement proclaims, he reigns, and that forever. The empty tomb declares the power of God. And for those of us who are visible and visual-oriented, here the Lord points us to the cross and the tomb to simply say our God is powerful. We are not, friends, simply monotheists believing in one God. We are megatheists believing in a big God. There is no comparable God. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Do you know how that ends? There is nothing our God cannot do. Do you believe this? I wonder if we do anymore. Certainly as an institution, we struggle under the weight of many pressures and challenges. Churches wonder if the churches can continue on in our day and age. And as Christians, we struggle with our own faith. As we cast doubts upon God's faithfulness and goodness, as we wonder whether we have the strong, uh, strength to carry on. Friends, we are megatheists. Our God is big. Our God is so big and so strong and so mighty as our children's song declares. There is nothing our God cannot do. There is nothing that our God cannot do. So much so, Paul grounds this by answering the so what throughout the book of Ephesians by reminding us of a couple things, two things in particular I want to point to. When it says in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, in prayer... Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work among us, he says. And it says in chapter 6, verse 10, he ends his letter by reminding his children to simply say, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord 
and the strength of his might. I don't know if you grew up with Michael Card. I did. Along with folks like Keith Green and Rich Mullins, they sustained my faith when I was a teenager and early single person overall. Recently, I had a chance to meet him in person. I've been to his concerts before, never spoke to him before. Sharon and I were giddy. I mean, we took so many pictures of him, whether he saw me or not. What was amazing about him was he's so nice. I wasn't expecting that. He's incredibly nice. Despite his fame, despite all the accomplishments, he was incredibly nice. And that night, he actually sang a song, which I think fits the way our attitude and faith ought to be. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. Uh, there are parents here who could probably sing this section. If I were to sing it, I wouldn't bore you or to actually torture you that way. But you know what I mean, right? A faith that cannot be seen. Friends, as a fellow journeyman in this pilgrim, we are so grateful for New Life Prez here. We're grateful for the pastors. We're grateful for the elders and deacons and all those who serve both in public and private ways as all of you who are here who make up this incredible community. May the, the God our Father grant you individually abundant wisdom and faith to know and experience the riches, the hope, as well as the power of our Lord. And may the Lord continue to sustain this church so that from this pulpit each and every single week, not only the next four years, but 40 years to come, the declaration of the life that we have in Christ Jesus and the hope and the riches as well as the power that this generation and these folks need even in this day and age. May the Lord sustain you, bless you to that end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time for us to gather as your sons and daughters to hear your word being read out loud and declared. We thank you, O Lord, for sustaining New Life Press here for the last four and many years beyond in its history. We're grateful for everything that happened, both small and big, both difficult and easy, because you have ordained them all. We ask that you grant to us faith to have hope in you, O Lord, that you will bring all of us and this church in Christ Jesus home one day. Remind us of how precious we are to you, the richest inheritance that belong to you. Teach us, O Lord, to know that power is at work among us, that we may lean upon you, depend on you, trust in you always, no matter the circumstances and challenges. For we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.